Mark 10, verse 1, and he left there, being Jesus, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him again, or in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? <laughs> and he answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write her certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And they said to him, or they said to them, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery just one, one more time, let's pray over the reading of God's word as I need God's help as I go through this with us this morning. Father, we do come to you again, knowing that you are the author and you are the creator of all things. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you know perhaps we, we may have been looking for some, some word for us that, that can help us in certain situations. Lord, I just thank you, God, that it was your word we just heard, even though it was my fallible lips, it was your word that was spoken over us, Lord. I, I pray that you would be mighty to save in this room. And I pray, God, that you would draw us closer to you and bring us further away from our position towards sin and our position towards uh, this, this way that is wicked towards your word, God, and draw us closer to you. And may you be glorified above all things. In Christ's precious name, we pray. Amen. We come to this particular passage and verse in a time in our in history, when the institution of marriage is rejected by many and, and has been re-engineered by many, and particularly I'm thinking of the people in D.C., it is regarded um, routinely as a traditional historical form as nothing more now that is outdated, it is outmoded, it is archaic, and it's historical view of marriage and research by the Joint Economic Committee it suggests that since the start of the 21st century, marriage rates has declined from more than eight marriages per 1,000 to now to six marriages per 1,000, according to the population in 2019. And if we all know and are aware of what happened in 2020, we are fully aware that that year brought about the least amount of marriages than any year ever recorded. Pew Research in 2021 found that a rising share of U.S. adults are living without a spouse. In, in the New York Times columnist Charles Blow uh, 
heck of a last name, uh, notes that among adults, married people will soon be a minority in the United States. Now, Blow, who I know him on a last name basis. I know him not, actually. Blow is actually fine with this because he goes on to argue for the weakening of the institution of marriage. Within the last few months, we have seen this type of implosion of this redefining of what marriage is by the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act that came from the halls of Congress and was signed by the president, which gives no rights to anyone, but what it is is a Trojan horse that will eventually, and you will eventually, I'm no prophet, but I'm telling you that this will happen where you will see cases in court where we as Christians, we as churches, where Christian orphanages, where Christian institutions, where Christian colleges, that if they are for what a biblical view of marriage is, will be challenged in a court. And this is where we are in our culture today. To where if you adhere to what the Bible, and this is not Matthew, I, I want to press on this every single week, that this is not Matthew Thrower's opinion. This isn't something that I conjured up one day. It's like, you know what, I think I'm going to write out a, a view of this, or I'm going to give you a view of that. This is, this is what informs me. This is my worldview. Every single one of you in this room, you have a worldview. You have a worldview, and, 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 and please understand, my view, my worldview is a biblical worldview. <laughs> in fact, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's quote when he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything. It is the illuminating word of God that allows us to see with a lens that is clear. And this biblical lens allows us as Christians to have peace in calamity because of this world, because of this biblical view. I have clarity in chaos. There, and, I, and I'll pray, there is no other biblical view that can offer you a peace when things are melting all around you. There is no other worldview that can provide us a clear and concise lens to see other than the biblical worldview. So I stand before you, as I do every single week, and as I, it's just how I know how to do things. I stand before you, not ready to uh, ingest upon you, that's a weird word, uh, some type of view that I've conjured up myself, that I think, you know what, I feel like this is the way we're going to move just because I feel it. There are no feelings attached to this. There is only a view that I hold and I stand on. And it's the authority of the word of God. If you don't have the authority of the word of God that is driving your worldview, what you will see is a type of erosion that anytime the culture changes, you change with it and your foundation 
erodes underneath you. And suddenly you have nothing to stand on. That's why, it's, that's why it's so funny when people change their views on things all of the time. It's a moving target. It's the moving goalpost. This is our win this year. Next year, this is our win. This year, this is our definition. So we have to understand that our view is from a biblical standpoint. And if it is not your view then sadly you are that of Proverbs 14, 12, that there is a way that seems right to you, but its end is destruction. Let me get back to the text, and we'll get more into that in just a moment now. All of that by way of introduction. I want to focus on these few verses because right now we are at the cusp of the end. Like literally Jesus is about to go before the cross. Like we are right here at it. We're just 52 verses away from Jesus's arrival into Jerusalem. Mark has told us up front what the purpose of Jesus's ministry is about. And if you remember his message, it was that he would teach them. If you think back when the crowds would get too big, the crowds would get too much for Jesus, when everybody was just after him for miracles, Jesus would tell his boys, he's like, y'all, it's time to escape because I've got to teach somebody else. I've got to go to the next town to teach. So, So then the question is, what is Jesus teaching us? What has Jesus been teaching everyone so far? The the gospel. The euangelion, the message, the good news of the kingdom. By way, it has been uh, communicated in a way of what? Repent. Repent. In other words, turn away. (laughs) Turn away from your lifestyle. Turn away from the things that you think are right. Turn away from your sin. Turn away. This has been the message of Christ. It was the message that compelled the disciples to him. It was the message that compelled some of the audience to him. And and if we think about it in terms of 21st century language, it is still the message that compelled every single one of you in this room. My hope is that every single one of you have been compelled because you repented and you turned from your sin and you looked to Christ as your hope. And you look to Jesus Christ as the answer. And that's his message. This is why Jesus says, I've come here. And we see this again in verse 1. He begins and he continues to teach. Now, now sadly, there were some of these people who were following after him for signs and wonders. And they were looking for Jesus to do something tangible so that they can have something met in their life. And yeah, Jesus would come and he would heal the sick. He would, he, would, he, would, he would come to those who were marginalized in society and meet the needs of those who were around him. But that was not the purpose in which he came. Please don't get that mixed up. Lest you turn the gospel into some kind of social justice movement in which it is not. It is that Christ came with a message. Repent. Turn from your sins Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from the way that you think is right, but it will only lead you into destruction. Turn and look to Christ. That's the message of Jesus. 
And so then the Pharisees come in. And so we, in verse 1, you have the crowd coming to him. And then in verse 2, we have the Pharisees that are coming for him. And they're coming for him. And the text says that some of the Pharisees came to test Jesus. Now, this is an interesting thing. In other words, they're coming to do some, some type of investigation uh, from Jesus. They're, they're trying to off-guard him. They're trying to trip him up with something. And, and this is the M.O. of the Pharisees. And I would suggest for, for the majority, most of the Pharisees, this is what they're after. They're after to kind of, kind of trip Jesus up, trying to kind of trap him, get him in a corner, and, and, and just, just see, see, he's, he's not the Messiah. This is their intent. They're after Jesus to give a sign. You know, if you, if you are who you say you are, just, just give us a sign. Isn't that what they did back in chapter 8? And so here they are again, trying to test Jesus they're trying to, to just trip him up, ask him a question. Now, there are two types of, of ways, two types. There's a difference between a person who comes to ask you a question and who is genuinely wanting to know the answer. And then there's that idiot. You know the idiot who, who's going to try to ask you a tra- question to, to try to trip you up with the answer, right? If, if idiot is a very harsh word for you, uh, moron. How about that, right? The, the moron who, who's, who's not genuine in his approach, to, who's willing to learn, right? No, they're, they're just trying to trip you up. And so what they're going to do, don't miss this, what they're going to do is use the word of God to trip up the son of God. I mean, I mean isn't that crazy? That somehow a religious person knows the word of God, but is going to use the word of God to further their agenda. Isn't it, isn't it remarkable? And I, and I have to pause, and I don't want to belabor on this point, but I, but I do feel like it causes me to want to go there. How things have changed in 2,000 years But in actuality, nothing has changed at all. The concept that somebody would want to use the word of God out of context to push an agenda is nothing new. I mean, just think about the people in in culture where you know where they'll take a verse, strip it from its context and meaning, also, they can push their own personal agenda. It's so fascinating how things have changed, yet absolutely nothing has changed. The only thing that's changed is that we are sitting in a theater room, and we're not sitting in a dust-filled hut. That's it. I'm reading a few jotted notes and some scripture off of a tablet. That's the technology has changed. Nothing else has changed. How, how, we would, how, how we would take the scripture out of context to push a personal agenda is exactly what the Pharisees are trying to do, trying to trip up Jesus, use the word of God against God so that they could push their own agenda. And, and, and they asked the question, pretty straightforward question. I have to give it to them. Is it lawful for a man to divorce 
his wife. Now, the background to this question needs to be understood. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, in Jesus' day, there were two groups who expressed their conviction concerning divorce. Two Jewish groups. One group, we can call them very liberal in their approach. Very permissible when it comes to divorce. Very nonchalant. Oh, your wife burnt the toast? Divorce her. Oh, your wife is just, she won't stop nagging you? Divorce her. Oh, your wife won't leave you alone while you're on the toilet for two hours? Divorce her. Oh, oh okay. So, so it was just this very liberal approach to marriage. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you had what we would call maybe this, this very conservative-leaning group in their view of marriage were absolutely nothing gave permission to leave your spouse. And so the Pharisees come and say, let's try to get Jesus to commit to one side or the other. And Jesus, (laughs) it's so funny. You know, everybody always says, you know, man, I would just love to be in the physical presence of Jesus. And and, and my response is like, "I, I would be terrified. You know, we just think that, oh, that's just such a beautiful thing just to be in the physical presence of Jesus. Just want to love on him. I just want to give him a big old hug. Meanwhile, Jesus is reading your thoughts to you. Jesus, he understands the motive of their heart. He sees, he hears their thoughts, and he reads right through the hypocrisy of these religious zealots. And so... (laughs) Jesus goes after them with his question. And and his response to them is, well, what did Moses, what did Moses command you? Let's go back to what the Old Testament has to say. What did the prophet say to us? Well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So he provided a piece of paper So that a man can say, as long as I have this correct piece of paper, and as long as I have just this one thing, I can divorce and I can send her away. As long as I have this, then I'm I'm done with this, I'm out. But what we need to understand is that when Moses instituted this process, it was not so that the process was made easier for them to get divorced. It was so that the process would be harder for them to get divorced. And he goes on to account to the hardness of their people's hearts that Moses wrote the law towards. Now, what we need to understand with this, and we're going to move on from from this question, and we'll get back to it later, is that... we'll get this completely wrong if we get this wrong, that these certificates were actually for the purpose of prevention of divorce rather from this very permissible lifestyle of when things go wrong, when things get bad, when I just fall, you know, the the dumbest lie you'll ever hear from from a pastoral perspective, the, the the stupidest thing I've heard is, well, I just fell out of love. Well, what, what, and I, I have too many questions, and I don't have the time to get into that. And, it, and it's just what these people are getting to. 
Can I have an easy way out? That's what they're getting to. I got to press on this again. It's funny how nothing has changed over the last 2,000 years. We see the, the, the rapid decline in marriage over the past 50 years in the United States. And we see this radical dimension, diminishing of the institution of something that Christ ordained in the beginning. And I want you not to miss this, but I want you to see what Jesus does to the Pharisees. What does Jesus do to them? He draws them back to Genesis. He takes them back on this journey of how everything got its start. He takes them back to the origins of everything. He does not get buried into, you know, this in-depth discussion about whether or not, you know, you can divorce or whether or not this can take place. He just says, let me take, let me talk to you for just a second. And, and let's, let's go through the beginning. Let's make sure none of us has a misunderstanding of what the biblical intent of marriage. Let's make sure none of us have this misunderstanding of what God's view of marriage is. And so you, you can jot this down, but he takes them on the Genesis account from Genesis 1.27 when he gives them this verse and he quotes scripture as, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And all the Darwinians in the room are getting very nervous, as you should. And in chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus is quoting, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The question is, is it lawful to divorce his wife? Jesus says, what does Moses do? They respond, well, he gave a certificate, and Jesus is like, very interesting. But let's think about how this thing, was, how this thing started in the very beginning. Now, I, I want to point this out. Jesus does not ever quote from the Bible as allegory. Okay? Jesus is not quoting this as some type of fairy tale that was handed down to him. Jesus is quoting from the scripture, from the Torah, from Genesis as an actual event that took place. He's not saying this is allegory. He's not saying that this is some made-up fantasy that maybe we should believe in. He's certainly not advocating for Darwinian theory. He's not advocating for some type of evolution. He is advocating for a biblical view and a right view of the creative order. And in so doing, he is telling us, he is telling his listeners to lean into this. Marriage is a part of the creative order. It reminds me of Paul in Romans chapter 5 concerning the nature of what it means to be in Adam and to be in Christ. He's not arguing from some mythological or allegorical type material. 
Anytime someone from the scripture is quoting scripture, it is from the historical perspective that this actually took place. It should not be a surprise to us, though, that when a view like this is, is, is brought to our attention, the doctrine of, of marriage, that so many of us would be predisposed to say something like, not, oh, yes, we agree, but, but oh, no, I don't like that. Isn't that what we do? When a doctrine of, of this stature comes to our attention, what, what is, what is the, the, the heart of mankind is that, no, my way is better. No, no, I've got a better idea. No, in fact, God is just trying to cage you. No, in fact, God is just a mean, angry God, and, and he's only trying to impose upon us his will. And, and that's, that's how we want to respond to this. But Jesus quickly takes us on a journey, and he says to them, he says to the Pharisees, and everybody listening, from that point to today, let's go back to the basics. Do you want a biblical view of marriage? Then let's go back to the basics and see how this thing was started. Marriage is not a human invention. It's not some societal convention. It's not any marriage isn't something that, you know, somebody at, at some point in history just drummed up just so that they could be this, this really boring person and impose their will upon the people. I mean, just think about this for a second. Any 12-year-old biological boy understands the relation between what happens with a man and a woman. Right? We, we understand these things as, as children. This biblical view. So Jesus goes back and he impacts to them. He impacts all of this, this creation narrative and I, and I can't go through all of this because our time is almost up. But it, I want to go back and I want to look at Genesis 1 and 2 because when Jesus is quoting this, this is the most significant case for a biblical marriage that I think the Bible can present. And, and, and mainly because it's, this is what God did in the beginning. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one. This is the word of God. This is what I stand on. This is my position. This is not an ever-evolving position. This is nothing that we'll say down five years down the road. Well, you know what? Because the culture is changing, I think we should change too. Like, please, please hear me. If that ever comes out of our mouth, leave this church. And do not look back. Paint our faces on a billboard with the word wolf on it. If anyone takes the word of God as some nonchalant, this kind of culturally irrelevant, historical garbage, then you run from that person. Jesus takes the word of God serious, we ought to, as well. And when he's quoting this, he's telling them to lean into this because I'm going to give you the creative order. And when you go through the creative order, you're going to find 
marriage. And I want you just to see four things really quickly out of this just few verses that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Marriage is exclusive. Now there's, <laughs> I could get myself in a lot of trouble, but you know, one, I don't care. But the other, I do, I, I do believe in not being a turd. You, you get this idea in culture where everything is inclusive, inclusive, inclusive. And it's, and that, you know, I, I have a really bad sense of humor. I, I laugh at it because I, I start to think about, well, well, let me insert my opinion and we'll see how inclusive you are. Inclusivity only makes sense when you are aligned with that particular viewpoint, <laughs> which is not inclusive. Isn't that funny? It's like no moron gets it. The people who are like screaming the whole inclusive thing, they just don't even understand it, that they're not being inclusive because what they mean is sign off on my doctrine. And if you don't agree with it, then to hell with you. And that's, that's what they're teaching. And I want to make this clear. Marriage is not inclusive. It is exclusive. exclusive. And, he, and he gives this to us. It involves a man and a woman. It does not involve a man and 14 women. I don't, I don't you know, we are in Utah. i got to be careful. Um, but I, I got, you know, I got to say, I can barely handle... Don't laugh. I can barely handle the one woman that I have. If I insert another one in there, I'm in the bin, y'all. Y'all will never see me again. And she knows it's true. Like she ain't up there ready to throw a tomato at me. She's like, I know I'm allowed to handle. Very open about this. Happy Valentine's Day, baby. I love you. It's not for two men. It's not for two women. It is exclusively for a man and a woman. Even human physiology, even biology affirms this. How does human flourishing, do we need a graph or something? Do we need to put this? How does human flirt? For all the teenagers, you're, you're grateful we don't have graphs and stuff like that in here. This isn't a uh, biology class. But, but think about it. How does human flourishing take place? Between a man and a woman. Biology has it right. Physiology has it right. The Bible has it right. Secondly, it's also disruptive. Marriage is exclusive, and marriage is disruptive. And not by the way you think I, I, I mean that. But notice what he says. For this reason, a man will do what? Leave his father and mother. One day I understand this, and I, I pity the fool, as Mr. T says. The, the young fella who's going to come and sway my daughter 
and convince her to marry him. I pity him. What is he doing? He's going to disrupt my family. He's going to cause my baby girl to leave my house. Now, he may be a good guy, you know. He may, he may get all the checks, you know. He's gonna, he's gonna, we're going to have a come to Jesus meeting in my closet. I'm going to show him all my weapons. And I'll look him in the face one day and I'll tell him, let me tell you something, Joker. If you ever hurt my daughter, they will not remember who you are. I will end the story of your life right now. That's not biblical. Okay, maybe I think I'm bleeding out on you. I'm sorry. I need therapy. Somebody pray for me. <laughs> this idiot is going to come into my house. Again, sorry for the use of word idiot. This moron, going, he's going to walk in my house, and he's going to disrupt it. As he should. He should not be a mama's boy when he gets married and stays stuck with his mom and not tend to his wife. And I think we see this in society where the married couple, they're not leaving their parents. They're not leaving what the Bible says here. A man should leave his house and take his wife, create the family. It should disrupt the family that they leave in a positive way. That they are disrupting it and they are leaving out with blessing. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one. The third thing is not only is it exclusive and it's not just disruptive, but it's also permanent. I, I, get, I get that this is, this, is, this is a tough one. And, and this will go kind of with the grain of the question that these people are asking about. But if we think in terms of what the biblical view of marriage and what Jesus is trying to get them to do, draw them back to the narrative of creation. What was the purpose? What was the intent of marriage? The purpose, the intent was that marriage would be permanent. That it wouldn't fall to the societal ills of our day to day that, that as soon as things get rough or, or as soon as, you know, um, you, you know like I said earlier, the, the wife, uh, she burns the food or, or she doesn't do things like I think she should. Or maybe, maybe it's the husband. Maybe he's just getting on your last nerve. Those, you know, and we take those minor things, we major on them. And we don't view marriage as a covenant. We view it as a contract. Because what a contract says is that if you do not meet the demands of these terms, then I'm out. But a contract, a covenant says that even if you don't meet these terms, that I'm going to fight for you and I'm in this with you. Marriage is exclusive. Marriage is disruptive. Marriage is permanent. And lastly, marriage is also sexual. For the two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. They've been joined together. You see, this is why the public, social, civil dimension of marriage is so crucial. 
sleeping with someone, having sex with someone is not marriage. It is the intrusion of the marital bonds. And it does not make a marriage. Because marriage is all of these things, exclusive, disruptive, social, and everything else we can think of. And it is also sexual. This is why... um, and this, this is why God says that the privilege of sexual activities, the benefits of procreation are set solely, exclusively within the context of this monogamous, heterosexual, bonding, permanent relationship. Now, if we were to go out and proclaim this and we'd go talk about this, it just seems so archaic. And it seems like for a world that just kind of grows more hostile towards Jesus every single second, these are the type of messages that will get us canceled. These are the type of messages that, that groups will come to and will sue us because we're not being inclusive. But this is what Jesus is drawing them back to. He's drawing them back. And, this, and, and, and I would just pray, God is not some cosmic killjoy. Marriage is not in a way designed to put us in a cage and leave us constrained and feeling like, you know, like this can't be all God has for me. I know this isn't some of our stories. For, for some of us, our story, it did not end permanently. For, for some of us, the story was sexual promiscuity. That's, that's some of our stories. For, for some of our stories, it was a failed relationship after failed relationship. It was, I am pursuing after sex. I am pursuing after relationships so that, I can, so that it can do something in me that it was never designed to do. And so you go chase the desire. You go chase the, the temptation. And you end up the next day thinking, you know what? That didn't do to me what I thought it was going to do. And I want you to know the reason why it didn't do for you the thing that it, did, it could not do is because that is not the design of its intent. And I just want to say pause and say thank God. Thank God that those things, that if it wasn't permanency, if it wasn't exclusive, if it wasn't you who was cha- if you were the one who was chasing after the sexual temptation and desires, I have to say thank God for his grace. And I, I have to thank God that he is able to restore. I have to just pause and say thank God for his second, his third, his fourth, his fifth chances. And I just have to say thank God that even though this is not this biblical view, this what Jesus is drawing us back to is not some of our stories. Man, I just got to say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. That because we may have been sexually promiscuous, that because maybe we, we were the one who wanted to go from relationship to relationship, and, and maybe we were the one who caused the divorce. Maybe we were the one. I, man, I just got to say, thank God. That does not have to define you. 
that his mercy for us is new. And another thought that I would say about marriage is that marriage, you know, in, in regard to the whole thing where we think, well, well, God is just a cosmic killjoy and he's just trying to cage us and, you know, trying to make us all servants around here. You know, marriage should be fun. I'm not going to ask, I, I'm not going to ask you if your marriage is fun. But it should be. I'm not one to should on people, but I'm telling you, you should. I don't believe in shooting. But you you should. <laughs> you should have a fun marriage. And if you don't, I would press on you and say, why don't you take 50% of the time that you're using to expend on what this relationship isn't, all the crap she puts you through, or all the junk that he is not. And if you would take 50% of the energy that you're putting towards all of those bad emotions, all of those bad thoughts, all of those bad feelings, and you lay that at the feet of Christ, and you turn away from your sin and you repent to him, I'm not telling you your, perf- your marriage is going to become fun instantaneously or you will develop the most perfect marriage, but I'm telling you it will get better. That if you will stop expending your time on all the things that she doesn't do, all the things that he doesn't do, and use just 50% of that time praying, 50% of that time studying the word of God, 50% of the time uplifting your spouse, then my hunch is that it would get better, get better. My hunch is not that it would get bitter, like I just said. That's what we're trying not to do. And then the disciples, they said, well, when, when they got, got him on his own, they said, yeah, well, Jesus, what about that divorce thing? And we'll pick that up next week. 